0: Amen. Amen. Well, let me get you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 14 today. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words for you up on the screen. 2 Samuel chapter 14 beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth, and when the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king the king said to her, what is your trouble? And she answered, alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, give up the man who has struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also, thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord the king. And on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. And then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the man said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant for the king will hear and deliver. His servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And she answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right or the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king, and Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem, and the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house, he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and didn't come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come to him. Then he said to his servants, you see, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose. Mm Mm-hmm. And went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Not sure that's how it came out, but... (laughs) Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. And Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom... So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Uh, so, you guys were picking up some of that, huh? Good morning, church. You doing all right? Yeah? Cool. It's great to have you here today, and uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to 2 Samuel 14, and if you're new with us, I just wanna say welcome. I am so glad that you're here, and having come off a month in July where I got to go to several different churches, it continues to be on my heart, the awkwardness and uncomfortability that is there when you try out a church for the first time, and so I just wanna personally welcome you uh, we are so glad that you're here we've got a whole team of people that want to help you get connected i will be in the lobby to meet you if you want to meet me which is sometimes a yes or no which i get and i'm cool with that but we just want to know we want you to know that we're so delighted that you're here and we're in the middle of this series uh and, and this is common to what we do here we just preach through books of the bible uh i would say that's the majority and then every once in a while, we'll, um, we'll do something on theology that we think is important, or we'll do something that's culturally relevant to the church that needs to take a stand on certain biblical realities. But that's what you're going to find. Old Testament, New Testament, theology, and addressing key issues from the pulpit through the scriptures, always the scriptures at the foundation, always, 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 okay? So we're glad that you're here. You're jumping into chapter 14, which is definitely one of the hardest messages I've ever had to prepare. Uh, this is one of the weirdest texts that there is out there, and uh, yet you expect something to be here today. And so I do have something for you, and if you want, you can jot down the title of the message. The counterfeit parable of the prodigal son. The counterfeit parable of the prodigal son. If chapter 13, you all, many of you here last week, Chapter 13 was kind of an elevated repetition of the sins of David and the sons of David. You remember that? And we said that Amnon's sin was paralleling and in some sense elevating uh, David's sin against Bathsheba, right? And in the second half of the passage, it was uh, Absalom's sin paralleling the sin of David against Uriah, right? If that was the truth of chapter 13, then the way chapter 14 reads is a Nathan-like parable to back up the sins of his sons in chapter 13. So we see in chapter 12 a parable that Nathan gives to trick David into passing judgment on himself, right? And then he comes down on him and says, you are that man. Well, in this text, there's a Nathan-like parable as well, given by the woman of Tekoa, seeking to trick David into passing judgment on himself. But this is a different scenario. One commentator wrote it like this. Nathan's parable in chapter 12 was designed to rouse the king's conscience as against his feelings. In this Nathan-like parable, the woman as prompted by Joab seeks to arouse David's feelings as against his conscience. The chapter, as a result, also has this stunningly similar and yet different parable of the prodigal son vibe. You know the parable of the prodigal son, right? Luke 15, the son takes the inheritance from his father. He banishes himself from the land. He squanders all of his resources. He comes to the end of himself. The, the Jesus storybook Bible says he's eating piggy food. Like I remember the version because I would read it to my kids. And he gets himself up, comes to himself, returns to his father. Remember, the father embraces his son as he's working on his I'm sorry speech, on the walk down, sees him, runs to him, embraces him, kisses him. It's such an awesome moment. And yet here we have this kind of twisted version where you have a son who banishes himself because of the murder that he had committed. And he gets drawn back to the king. He gets drawn back brought back to Jerusalem without retribution, without brokenness, without a sense of dejection like the prodigal son, proud and pushy as he is, and it sets the stage for the kingdom of David to teeter even more than it already has. And so what I want to do today is I want to show you how the gospel just plays out so centrally over and against the counterfeits of this parable and this story as it unfolds in chapter 14. I want to show you how different this is from the gospel that you must believe in to be saved from your sins. The gospel that you ought to delight in if you are a Christian comes through plainly and clearly over and against the opposites, the counterfeits you see in the text today. And so if you want to write it down, I always give a big idea that kind of sets the direction for the text and the way we're going to go this morning. Here's the big idea. What hopelessness there is for exiled sinners without a righteous king who is both just and the justifier. So if you aren't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, every single person that is living today or has ever lived is in the category of sinner, exiled sinner. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and what hopelessness there is for sinners, exiled sinners, without a righteous king who is both just and the justifier. And you know I'm playing off the story that's going on in the text, right? David should have extended justice to his son and he does what? He caves, right? And now, he's being asked to be merciful, and he doesn't extend mercy either, and so he's caught, David's son, Absalom, is caught in the middle of neither receiving mercy nor justice, and bound up in the hypocrisy of David is an inability to do what he ought to do with his son, which only stirs the fire within his son, which we will see come out in fury in the chapters to come. There's a similarity here in that David passes over former sins, does he not, of his son? And yet in the gospel, God also passes over former sins. David does so unrighteously. God does so righteously in the gospel. David does so unrighteously, and we'll see it here, that here, maybe the way to just sum up everything that's happening is kingdom chaos continues in this chapter via a faulty mediator who uses a pretend parable to convince the caving king to receive back his persistently prodigal son. I'll say it again, because that was a lot. (laughs) Some of you are like writing it down. One time there was a guy in the front row that just would bring a laptop so he could keep up, and now you're like listening to me once, you're like, I get it. He talks fast. I wish I had a laptop to keep up with this. I said that the issue here is that the kingdom chaos continues via a faulty mediator, would be Joab, right? Who uses a pretend parable to convince the caving king to receive back his persistently prodigal son. Of course, the difference in the prodigal son story is he lived a prodigal life, but he came back broken and dejected to his father, Right? What we don't see in this story is that kind of brokenness. He's brought back, but he's persistently a prodigal. He's not restored to the father as such, and we see the breakdown of this, but see, while that takes place in an unrighteous sense, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God does so righteously passing over our sins, and I want to show you why that's the good news, that this is the king that you need, and that is the good news that you need for your life, and so we'll break it down and I hope you'll see the gospel implications here. So, 2 Samuel 13 breaks down into two major sections, so does 2 Samuel 14. Two major sections, we're gonna break it down like this. A pretend parable in verses one to 22, and a proud prodigal in verses 23 to 33. Two major divisions, two points. First one, a pretend parable, now, just to give you a sense for where this is, uh, we are three years elapsed between the end of chapter 13 and chapter 14. You don't usually get that in the Bible. Like, where are we? What is going on time-wise? Three years between the end of 13 and the beginning of 14, and our good friend in the beginning, verses 1 to 3, we meet Joab again. And you know Joab from the past, right? He's the guy who brought Abner in and stabbed him and killed him. And chapter what? 2 Samuel chapter Cool, 3? And, uh, right, one of those, it's been a long time, we're in 14, it's been a long time. Joab is the kind of, we used this word last week, and it's going to come up big here, Joab is crafty, do you remember how I defined crafty? Which was wisdom without character. A crafty, get it done kind of guy, gets the deal done no matter what it takes, so you can count on him, but you're not necessarily guaranteeing he's doing it in an upright kind of way. He's got a shadiness to him, and Joab has that, and he's interestingly has a vested interest in getting Absalom to come back, he was, remember, of his own volition, banished himself to his grandfather on his mom's side uh, of, in, in Geshur because he could be safe there from any of the repercussions that would come from him murdering his brother. And now Joab wants him back. We don't get a sense for why that is. Maybe he's trying to stop some intended future problem that he sees in the kingdom without the heir being returned to Jerusalem. But he is into convincing David. Now, the question would be, why would you have to Convince David to bring Absalom back based on the words that we see in verse one, namely that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Is everyone reading that the way that I'm reading that? Namely, that his heart goes out to him in a I miss you kind of way. Is that how you're reading that? It certainly seems that how 13, chapter 13, verse 39 reads that the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. All of that seems like he misses his son and wants him back, but if that was the case, why go through this elaborate scheme and bring in this wise woman from Tekoa to share this phony story, to get David to trap himself in his own words and convince himself in his own hypocrisy that he needed to bring back his son? Why would that be necessary if David already wanted to bring back his son? What I think we need to understand about chapter 14 is that chapter 14 is the context to help us understand David's feelings at the end of chapter 13. Namely, when it says in verse 39 of chapter 13 that the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, there's two ways to read that. There is a positive way that this is used, but there's also a negative way that this is used, namely that his heart went out against Absalom that there was a hostile sense of because of what went down, because Absalom had killed Amnon, there was actually more of an upsettedness in David than a, oh, I miss my son and I want him back. And then if you continue in the story, you see very much in verse 24 of chapter 14 right here that David was not wild about welcoming Absalom back with open arms. Not open arms, more like a stiff arm. Like you can come back, don't, don't get him in here. Like, don't let him be around me. In fact, it's repeated multiple times. Don't let him be in my presence. And then the narrator says, so we didn't put him in his presence. This is why Joab has to leverage his best crafty move to bring in talents from Tekoa to help him trick David into changing, according to verse 20, changing the course of things and taking back his own prodigal son. And so he's got the script, he's got the play, he's got the actor, and I'm telling you, the woman from Tacoa puts on an Oscar-like performance here. Oh, save me, oh king, you know? I mean, she is like in it to win it, and she has memorized this thing, and she's like so ready to convince him, and I bet she's a little bit proud of her ability to do this. She was a wise woman, but as she begins what I would call her performance, you start to see how it mirrors chapter 12 in the way that Nathan's parable plays out. So what happens? We'll go to verse four. She falls on the ground and pays homage. I don't know why I want to say this in a southern accent, but I do. Save me, oh king. You know, I just want to, woo, save me. Oh, king. No more tears, of course. I just, every time I think about it, I smile, but she is, she is really, I mean, she is, you know, the the actors that are good are the ones that can cry on the spot, you know? Like the B-level actors, they're like trying to get tears out, you know? but then you're gripped by like, I don't know, who's, who's good at crying? like a Tom, Someone like a Tom Hanks or someone that's like, you get the tears going, you're like, <laughs> you're, you're sitting there on the couch like wiping back your own tears, I'm not crying, you are kind of thing, right? And you're just watching this play out and she's sad because she's this bereaved widow, she's been in long mourning, right? Don't put oil on your head, that'll look like this is fresh. I want him to think that you've been mourning for a long time and these two sons and, you know, they're out in the field and, and it feels like my childhood, boys will be boys, something happened it was likely competitive right one guy smacks the other the guy smacks the other then there's fist fights and there's no one there to bro- break it up and sadly one of the sons dies like not a good thing and the family the clan wants to enact justice on the remaining son for killing the other uh, or the uh, for killing his brother And so you see this whole thing playing out and if you're careful to pick up on what's going on, she's concerned in saying, man, if they take him out, my remaining son, they will snuff out the only remaining heir on my husband's side. Or as in verse seven, it says, they would quench my coal, is the way she puts it. Snuff out all that I have remaining on my husband's side. And if you're you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you start to really quickly pick up that this has some parallels. First of all, Hopefully you notice the parallels of the two brothers paralleling Amnon and Absalom from the chapter bef- two chapters before. Last chapter, two chapters. Absalom killing, when was that? Absalom killing Abner, or, wow, killing Amnon. If the names were easy, this would be fine, right? <laughs> Abner died like in chapter three, now I'm getting them all messed. At least I remember though, sometimes I think I've said it, And then I just get, people are just like, hey, don't worry, let him go. And then I listen to it later on and it's totally the wrong name. So at least I'm getting it right right now. Amnon was killed by Absalom. The brothers parallel that in some way, but it also parallels the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed, killed Abel in a field. And interestingly enough, Yahweh comes to the protection of Cain. Now, there's judgment on Cain, but there is a protection. In verses 15 to 18 of Genesis chapter 4, Yahweh protects anyone from killing Cain. And there seems to be a whiff of implication, and you can see it even in the way that the woman women leverages the argument in verse 14, where she's basically trying to say to David, you're not as compassionate as Yahweh is if you don't go out and protect this son, this son of mine slash this brother who killed his other brother. And so she is making the story up. She is selling it well. David is willing to help, but in this kind of like, hey, I just gotta get you out of my face kind of way, like uh, verse eight, go to your house and I'll give you some orders. Like he doesn't act on it right away, but he goes, listen, I'm in on this, okay? I need you to just go away for a second. And I'll deal with it and get back to you. And she's like, wait a minute, I haven't even got to my point yet like I can't have him push me out of the room. So she really quickly like jumps in, like she knows she can't lose the conversation. So in verse 10, she's like, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house. And she's like pushing him to stay in this conversation. She knows she needs to get him to commit in some way. So she has him commit to a vow. I need you to vow that you will protect my son. Because he basically says, listen, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Now that sounds strong. But I need stronger, I need you to vow. And so he says, as the Lord lives, not one of your hairs shall fall to the ground. That's my commitment. This pot commits him to a certain direction of decision. Now the woman has David right where she wants him. And she has and pulls the same Nathan-like move. Do you remember Nathan's phrase when he had David trapped? you are that man. Verse 13 is the Tuchoans woman, woman's version of you are that man. She gets him then. Well, if you're willing to protect that son, then why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. In other words, she's going, you are that man. You're acting two-faced. You're seeing this in two different ways. You are acting against God's people. This is how intense this is from her. You are acting against God's people by depriving Israel of their heir to the throne. You are punishing us for not bringing Absalom back from exile. And so as with Nathan... David is caught by the parable. Because he vowed that he would restore the woman's banished son and make sure nothing happened to him, he's now got to answer for the fact that he's doing nothing about his own banished son who, oh, by the way, because of Amnon's death, happens to be the one in line for the throne. Now, she swerves back in the narrative, and it gets kind of like, now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I'll speak to the king and maybe the king will perform the request of his servant. Like She just like swerves out because she doesn't want the main thing, her main thing to be identified as the main thing. She wants him to think that it just happens that this story that she's telling coincides with something in David's life but David's life story isn't the main thing. So she's trying to swerve it back into the main story. And I just needed help in my own life and in my own situation. I hope you're not picking up on the fact that I'm trying to get a message to you because it's, it is the main thing, but I don't want you to think it's the main thing. And now, David's kind of perceptive here, right? He's starting to kind of <laughs> And I think I heard a few people even laughing when it was read out loud, when David's like, um, can I ask you a question? Can I speak? Yes, speak? Is Joab behind this? What a great answer. This is the most rambling yes I've ever heard. As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It's like, just say yes. Just say yes. Like, where do you learn this? This is like etiquette camp, you know? Like, here's my long, robust answer. I hope someone is impressed or encouraged by that. And, and he just, she just basically goes, "You nailed it. You hit it on the head. Spot on. That's exactly what's going on. You know it all," which is a little bit of this flattery that's going on, right? You discerner of all good and evil. How awkward of that would that have been for that moment if you were David? Let me. Can, you are so good at discerning good from evil. Look at you. Oh. He's like living in his hypocrisy and it just gets worse and worse and worse, but you're awesome. And he's like, I'm not even gonna get into it. She's sucking up to me and it's working. And verse 21, something hasn't changed from last chapter and it maybe it's just, I've just phrased it this way, Dave caves. Because that's been so much of the last two chapters. Like, let me help you with a phrase that reminds you what's going on here. Dave's caving is a problem. Dave caves way too much. Dave caves as a father way too much. Dave caves as a king way too much. And Dave's caving is going to bring far more trouble upon the kingdom than he would have even thought of at the beginning Again, this is another bad parenting play. Why? Because you bring the kid back from exile that he rightly deserved. Frankly, you know what he rightly deserved, right? He should be dead. Like, justice says death. So you've got this situation where he's wooed in, trapped in his own words to bring his kid back, but he didn't want to do justice, hemmed in by his own hypocrisy, struggling with how he could possibly engage with justice likely because of the fact that he had done the same things and yet at the same time, they're like, we'll just at least be, I'm gonna put quotes around it, at least be merciful to him and he goes, he can come back but he can't be in my space. Like imagine if God was that way with us. You can That's how a lot of us feel about God, isn't it? We misunderstand how justice and mercy can meet, and so we read this story and go, that's how God feels about me. He's let me in, but he's kind of stiff-armed me because of who I am. He sees me as my sins would declare to him. And so, yeah, I'm brought in, but I'm not brought in that close, and I kind of deserve it, and therefore your relationship with God is constantly ebbing and flowing, icy on and off, not very committed, not very solid, So there's all kinds of weird application in this section. Let me just explain what's going on here, if I can give some application to the first point. This is a chapter of appearances. It looks like one thing, but is it one thing? Christianity is filled with people that are living lives of appearances. You look like a Christian, you say like you're a Christian, but you're not actually a Christian. You have people that walk around flaunting something on the outside that's not true on the inside. This is a whole chapter of appearances. It seems like Joab's wise plan, which is successful, by the way, seems wise, but we talked about last week that if wisdom lacks character, it's not really wisdom, is it? I'll take it a step further. He leverages and appeals in a sense to be merciful. They don't say it yet, but the implication is kind of be merciful, right? To, to bring back your son is mercy that I'm putting quotes around. But when you are appealing to mercy in a situation that requires justice, that is not wisdom. So why is that important for us? Well, it's important as a general principle, but I want to explain the importance from a gospel perspective. David unjustly and unrighteously passes over former sins. God righteously passes over former sins. God passes over your former sins righteously. How does he do it? He knows how to fulfill the tie between wisdom, injustice, and mercy meeting. Here's what I mean. God would be unrighteous if he passed over your sin and mine without saving us in a way that demonstrates his infinite passion for his glory because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If God were to receive us apart from a saving work that would demonstrate his passion for his glory at an infinite level, then him passing over our sins looks like he has little regard for his own glory, which is the essence of unrighteousness. God's passion for his own glory that we've fallen short of in our sin, God's passion for his own glory is his righteousness. And so, what he does is he finds a way in the gospel for justice to be satisfied so that mercy could be extended without doing anything in unrighteousness. How does he do that? He sends forth Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. Your sins will be judged before God. They were either judged in full on the cross of Jesus Christ where he died fully propitiating, satisfying the wrath of God deserving your sin debt. He paid it in full or you will pay it when you stand before the living God. He put forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation that the righteous and holy God, who of his own volition put Jesus to death, so the sin debt you owe is not only forgiven, but paid for by his propitiatory death, which, by the way, is the missing piece in this week's Twitter sphere fires about how the loan debt forgiveness is just like the gospel. Why can't Christians understand it? He didn't just cancel the debt. He pays the debt. In sending Jesus, the Son of God, the righteous requirements, the righteousness of God is on display because the payment satisfies the infinite greatness and passion that God has for his glory so that God himself can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And here's how confident we can be in this. Thomas Brooks wrote it like this, were there but one farthing of that debt unpaid that Christ was engaged to satisfy, it would not have stood with the unspotted justice of God to have let him come into heaven and sit down at his own right hand. In other words, if God didn't pay in full your sin debt, there's no way the Father would have welcomed him to sit at the right hand where he lives to make intercession for his people. So as sure as he's at the right hand, as as sure as he has made a sufficient propitiation so that what can be true of us, as Spurgeon said, is this. When you trust in Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, Spurgeon says this. You stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Because of the fact that in the gospel, Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice allows God the just to through Jesus be the justifier such that guess what Jesus Christ himself is called the wisdom of God he became to us the wisdom of God how can we be righteous it's not in my own strength it's not in my own righteousness I need an alien righteousness but he accomplished that By sending Jesus Christ to live a perfectly righteous life so that by faith his perfect righteousness could be imputed to my account as if I lived Jesus' life. And he judged Jesus through my faith in him in such a way that he treated Jesus on the cross the way I deserve to be treated for my sins so that by faith I could be set free, forgiven of all my sins, reconciled to God, imputed the righteousness of Christ so that I have confidence in his presence. So Christ became to us righteousness, his own righteousness to our account. He became to us sanctification, making us holy, the ones who have been justified in his sight by faith, and he has become our redemption, as First 1 Corinthians 1.30 says. This is simply the flip of what's going on in the text here, where David can't seem to deal with the wisdom issue of justice needing to be exercised, and yet the struggle to be convinced he should bring back his son in mercy. Now, we get to the second part of the story, a proud prodigal. We get to the second part, and and here's where you begin to see even more strongly these prodigal son-esque vibes taking place. Except in this situation, contrary to... Luke chapter 15, the prodigal here returns proud, returns pushy, and returns as a murderer. In some sense, you have the Psalm 73 dilemma. You know what I'm talking about Psalm 73? It's that passage when he starts by saying, surely you do good to the one who's pure in heart. And yet, I'll be honest, God, I was almost on the edge because I saw the blessing that was going to the wicked. They have long lives. They have little health problems. They have little problems in general. Everything they they touch seems to go to turn to gold. This is winning for them until I came into the sanctuary of my God. And then I realized in worship what you were doing with them, that truly the place they stood was slippery. And you had appointed them for judgment. There is a little bit of this where it's like Absalom murders his brother. It gets to be brought back into Jerusalem scot-free, no punishment. It seems like evil is winning. And yet, I would say this favor that it looks like Absalom is getting is not so much his favor as David's judgment. That same judgment from 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 10 and 12 that the sword won't depart from the house of David is taking place in Absalom returning scot-free, still proud and still pushy. Because what's going to happen is Absalom's about to take over the narrative just as he's about to take over the kingdom. He's not looking to take part in David's kingdom. He's looking to take over David's kingdom. It's a very different scenario. And so he starts with a kind of limbo land. So what do they do? Well, verse 24, they, they bring him back. In verse 22, they say, hey, go get him. So they, verse 23, rose. They get him from Geshur. They bring Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king says, he can dwell here, but don't, don't, don't. Don't let him into my presence. And so he repeats it. Absalom lived apart in his own house and didn't come into the king's presence. This is almost kind of like a weird purgatory kind of thing, right? You're like in the presence of the king, kind of, in that you're in the same city, but you don't really dwell in there. It's a little bit limbo land-ish. And then verse 25 to 27 is like the weirdest detour. Where we get into Absalom's hairstyle, and i kept thinking this is it just gaston 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 <laughs> just stands out but like slick back gaston with like a mane of hair you know and i'm a guy with thick hair i like short hair but for those of you who could, like need gel to like keep that thing back and it just flows down your head and you're like wow my neck muscles are getting stronger as i'm having to carry this the longer that it gets that's like his thing he loves his hair. I know you think I love my hair, he loves his hair. Okay? And he's got a lot more of it. And it's like, this is so weird. You're not in the presence of the king, but you've got, we're talking about his due. <laughs> what's, what's happening? And yet, uh, a veteran reader of First and Second Samuel are picking something up from that, right? <laughs> Sound like a former king? who had the height, Absalom's got the hair, Saul's got the height. It's about externals. Remember when Samuel was fired up about the sons of David because Eliab came out and he was just like, sup? I don't have a big chest, but can you see what I'm doing right now? It's kind of hard to see. Right? It's like this. What do you want? He's like, that's the guy. I like him. He's good. And, and the Lord's like, well, here's the thing. I'm, I'm actually more concerned about the inside than the outside. But remember I said this is a whole chapter about appearances. They're still stuck on this idea that we found the externals to get the right guy into the role. Who's the right guy? The one who's got external strengths that are apparent. Saul with his height, Absalom with his hair. He is praised for his handsome appearance from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. There is no blemish in him. He cuts his hair like he's into his hair. Okay, so the Proverbs talk about your hair is your crown and your glory. Some of you used to have it and, and, and so... Some of you still have it. And either way, Absalom beats all of us out. Here's the difference with the hair thing. His hair shows him to be full of himself. (laughs) He's full of his own glory. The difference is with the Nazarite vow, think about Samuel. Samuel's not cutting of his hair was a sign of strength versus Absalom's cutting of his hair was a sign of his own vanity. And ultimately, the source of his pride, his hair, would be his downfall in chapter 18 when... You could put it together that him getting stuck in the tree was because of the <laughs> his head seems to be in there, but is it possible that the locks and mane, the flowing awesomeness, got stuck in the tree? If you haven't read ahead, then you don't know what I'm talking about. These verses are saying something. Another Saul-like leader is rising up. The narrative is telling us here he comes and here he comes. And when this guy rises up, he will not be as hesitant to take over the kingdom as Saul was. At least, God bless Saul, was hovering with the baggage in 1 Samuel, remember? Like, where's the king? And he's like covering up, holding one of the bags. for are like, bring him out here. Here he is. And he's like, like, and then he sort of gets into the role, right? Absalom's just going to come in and steal it. We're going to see that even as soon as the next chapter. Now somewhere along the way, Joab, who really wanted Absalom to be a part of this whole thing, is now not returning Absalom's phone calls. Like I know some of you out there, you're like, oh, this person just go to voicemail, right? You click that button and then it's awkward if they're like in the parking lot and they see you do it, but let's just not go there. Just watch where you are when you do it. And you're like, yeah, this is going to voicemail for sure. And we're moving on. This is what Joab was doing. And so as would get the attention of most, if I can't get him on the phone, I'll just burn his whole life livelihood down. (laughs) Just I'm sure as if you wanted my attention, I suppose you could come and burn my house down. And that would leave me to hopefully ask it in such a polite way has been asked here. Why have you set my field on fire? (laughs) Can't be how he asked it, right? (laughs) Said no one ever after their livelihood burns to the ground, right? A barley field to you, you're like, meh, a barley field. And I'm going, meh, that's how they survived. Turns out it's pretty important. He burns the whole thing down because you won't return his phone calls? Psycho. (laughs) Right? And we know some of these people, you may be one of these people. <laughs> Here's a quick application, don't burn anyone's stuff down. You're like, I didn't, I teepeed him instead. Don't do that either, don't, just don't do it. Not for this reason. He's like, I need to get to the king. He wants to ultimatum the king, he wants to talk to him. He's either got to receive me or kill me. And he knows, it's like, um, kill me, you won't. Right, because if you were, you would have done it for the last two years and you didn't. And this is dumb. I should go back and hang out where I have privileges over in Geshur. I don't need to be here. So either do something about it or kill me. You won't. So I'm going to call you on it. So he goes, gets Joab's attention because that gets his attention. He gets into the presence of the king and he gives the king this ultimatum. Who gives the king an ultimatum who is already on the hook for murder? A guy who knows Dave Caves. A guy who's betting on the reality that Dave's not going to do anything about this so kill me or get over yourself I'm coming for the kingdom anyway and so they have this interaction he summons Absalom comes to the king he bows his face to the ground before the king and the king kisses him that kiss first of all it was a protocol kiss right this is how you kind of receive someone in some sort of a reconciliatory way. I know we don't do this, so. But but if if there was ever like a non-embraced kind of kiss, it was this kiss, like. Right. I mean, you're just like trying to. Like, I can't even do it. I know I have to, but. I, nope. Th- this is like a reluctant, protocol, kiss. Now, what's interesting about it is, does something ring a bell from what happens in the prodigal son? The father runs to him, embraces him, and does what? Kisses him, right? Starting to see some of the connections taking place, and not a hesitant embrace like this is. The father runs to The son, I want to make a connection between this kiss and that kiss because the kiss in the prodigal son story that Jesus tells, let me just remind you, the son's life had become a complete disaster. He was broken and the text literally says in Luke 15 that he came to himself something that Absalom never ended up doing. Absalom never came to himself never saw the weight of what he had done never confessed it as sin or anything that we see up until this point of the narrative but this one in Luke 15 comes to himself and decides he's going to go back to his dad because his life with his dad would be better than the one he is living and on the way back he's working on like okay what I'm going to say dad I'm so sorry I I don't deserve to even be treated like a son You, you can put me with your hired servants just would you take me back please 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 and in his return now, he is returning, right? He has is, he is tur- taken that 180 and gone back towards his dad. But before he can even set up the speech, which would imply that the king could then weigh the speech and decide whether or not he was going to receive his son, the king goes rushing out to his son. Two distinct differences. Absalom does not return remorseful. He does not return repentant. The kid in the prodigal son story does return repentant. And the father rushes out to meet the son and hug and embrace the son and bring him in and kiss him and set up a party to celebrate that my son was lost but now he is found. There are so many gospel implications. Listen, that's the kiss that you want. You want the kiss of the embrace of the father and David as an unrighteous king is not able to provide What we know Jesus can alone provide us so that the Father would embrace us in this way. You would would ask yourself, maybe in comparison, where does God come to you with this kind of an open-armed embrace for the sinner? And I would tell you where Jesus was stretched out and nailed to a cross is where you will find that open-armedness of God. Where you will find a warm embrace where God will not reject you, He will not stiff arm you, that you can come and be absorbed into His love. You can be welcomed by Him. Listen, you can you can pull an Absalom and be like, Yeah, I'm not even I'm not even a deal with repentance. I've done nothing wrong. I'll take the kingdom, I guess. But I'm not gonna do it Jesus' way, you will be rejected in the end. But to come as the prodigal son came back to his father, broken before his dad, aware of the shambles that he had made of his life of disinterest and rebellion against God, he turns from that and pleads for mercy from his father and he receives it. How is that possible in the story? Well, if you build out the greater understanding in the new testament you understand that at the cross compassion doesn't rule the day at the expense of justice they meet and it's there at the cross through the pardoning work of jesus that god can do what david doesn't namely welcome prodigals out of the chaos of sin and rebellion that's the only place to run you are a rebel you have been laden with sin decisions that you've committed commission, omission, there is plenty of that going on. But to know that you would not be stiff-armed like David does to his own son because of the work of Jesus Christ such that God could be to you both just and uphold his holiness and justifier, justifying you, an unrighteous sinner, and me, an unrighteous sinner, because he sent his son to be the substitute who would take upon himself the penalty that we deserve to be to pay, so that in Jesus Christ, we might be warmly, fully, completely as prodigals embraced by the king. That's what you need. Now, because David does neither with Absalom, Absalom ends up resenting his father's limited acceptance of him, and that continues the chaos that spirals out in chapters 15 and 16 and 17 and eventually gets to his death in verse 18, chapter 18. And we'll see that in future weeks. God help us to see and savor the gospel this week. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for you. We are grateful for your word. What a text, what implications, what craziness going on God, there may be very well people in this room that are, what would I say, living by appearances, who haven't come to Jesus and truly been repentant, haven't been embraced because they haven't come with a sense of just desperation for you, God, that haven't pleaded with you to... Be restored. Even even getting caught in that moment where they're returning, they think they have words that they're gonna say to you, and the fact that you would just receive them and they're coming to you and because of the work of Jesus, we can be reconciled to you through faith. God, it is a blessing and a gift. And something we don't see in this passage, but something we see in the opposites of what this passage shows us. So, Lord, I pray that you would help the gospel to penetrate our hearts deeply, that the reason we can be so closely, intimately related to the Father is because of the work of the Son in whom we are united, and through his work we are justified, declared legally righteous, not by our own efforts, but by his. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring that home to those who need to understand the gospel and need to apply the gospel by your power and your spirit